Welcome to the Roots Podcast, brought to you from the Training and Equipping Ministry of Chanctonbury, exploring revival, church, leadership and culture. Discover more about our community at chanctonbury.org.uk. So today we're talking about character and um, maybe the distinction is this morning we're talking about firm foundations for life. Next week we're going to talk about uh, I think James is talking about firm foundations for trial. Does that make sense? Just to like clarify that distinction. So Father, thank you for being who you are. As I speak generally, would you be speaking specifically to our hearts, we pray, Lord? Would your truths come alive and your true life be manifest more and more? Amen. So character, character, probably more than merely personality, um, the definitions are actually quite helpful, talk about like moral qualities distinctive to an individual, but um, kind of to give the game away, when we talk about Christian character, when we talk about moral qualities distinctive to an individual, really we're talking about how do we cultivate a character which is distinctive to the individual of Jesus. Because everyone has a character. Everyone worships something, everyone gives their life to something, and it's always a question of, of what. Like, what is your character going to be? What are you going to, to worship? What, what are you going to give your life to? What, or probably more poignantly, like whom are you going to emulate? Because I think all those examples quite intertwined about what we worship, what we give our lives to, what we try and emulate that is linked up to our character. I had this back and forth debate in my head. I want to say character is predominantly formed, but not entirely, but it's also not entirely natural, if that makes sense. So we have to like recognize that we do have a predisposition towards certain things, but, but not everything. Trivial examples, um, I didn't or haven't grown up with my dad. Um, he's not like terribly estranged, like I'll see him occasionally. But the bizarre thing that my mother would note as I was growing up, and then friends of my dad who would get to know me as I, as I grew up as well, is we walk the same way, like physically, like have the same gait and like apparently a little bit of a bounce or whatever. Like my dad, he never sat me down and was like, right son, this is how you walk. <laughs> apparently that was just like hardwired into me. I think there's some things about our character which we do have a predisposition to. But on the other hand, there's other things which actually we do form in and of ourselves. I'm sure many of you can relate to character traits you see in parents, friends, peers, teachers. You actually say, you know what, I'm going to form my temperament to be entirely different to that. (laughs) (laughs) And so it isn't always natural and it isn't always just caught, but rather like you take stock of what's going on around you and you decide to be formed in a different way. But also a key um, element within character is 
one of like one of the soapboxes I have, and it's like a, a favorite quote that the youth would kind of they would know it if I started saying the sentence was, "We always know that practice makes, except for it doesn't, because practice makes permanent." So that's why we're like taking a couple of weeks to talk about character because practice doesn't make perfect; it makes permanent. I don't mean to like be so antagonistic, but it's like sometimes you need to like disrupt just the the natural things that we just take as a given. Sometimes, kind of dwelling on that a bit too long, but keep talking about our character. We're trying to to emulate the moral qualities distinctive to an individual, namely that of of Jesus, because Jesus is our he's our model, he's our example, he is the pattern in which we follow and like want to be formed into. We want to nurture a Jesus character. I heard someone once say, there's no such thing as plagiarism in the kingdom. They didn't teach me that at college, because college is all about, like, there's absolutely no plagiarism here. But ultimately, like, this notion of being a copycat, (laughs) stealing Jesus' character, like, that's kind of the name of the game. We don't need to be these, like, uniquely individuals Uniquely, like, un. We don't need to worry about being unoriginal, as it were. I'm making out. Because actually, we are called to be imitators of God. The first couple verses of Ephesians chapter 5, depending on your translation, it says something along the lines of be imitators of God. So, like, do your imitation, but it's like in the context of being dearly loved children. So, when. Amongst my generation, I know everything nowadays is about we live in this age of authenticity. You have to be authentic to who you truly are. And again, I'll qualify these statements because I think they can be like misconstrued. But that's another soapbox of mine is like, no, as a Christian, I'm not called to be authentic to who I really am on the inside. I'm being called to be authentic to who Jesus really is. So I would say, actually, there is this extrinsic source and definition of truth and character, which just means it's outside of myself, it's not intrinsic, but outside, that I'm trying to attach myself to in the person of Jesus, quite simply. And I can understand how this can be misconstrued, saying, like, no, no, don't be authentic to who you really are, don't be unique. And I get why, after me, I didn't become a Christian until I was 20, but when I was... 16, 17, doing A-level sociology. I love the idea of Marxism, like a lot of, but on like an intellectual level. I love the antagonistic nature that, like, religion was just an ideological state apparatus to control people, and it was, he would say, it's the opium for the people. I think at the time, I was just like, yeah, it definitely is. So, but, so when I say, actually, like, we need to be conformed to who he is and not who we really are, don't hear that in like the Karl Marx <laughs> reading of it. Actually, we're being conformed to, to his image for our benefit. I always like want to link it back to, to, as a church, some of our core values, and specifically on the notion of character. I think the core values this really touches on is what I think is number one, but I don't think they're done in a hierarchy. I just think it's arbitrary that it comes first, is that we want to promote all glory to God. We want everything we do to actually promote, glorify God, bring him fame. 
We're not trying to create a platform for ourselves or a name for ourselves, but we're trying to mediate his glory through what we do. But as well as that, we also want to acknowledge that this value of revival starts with me. There is a, a personal responsibility to it. Not that I need to like nurture it all by myself, but I need to get in a place where God can get me. I heard someone use this phrase of saying like, if it's raining outside, you can go outside and get wet. And I think like, that's kind of a good analogy for revival starts with me. Your responsibility is to get in a place where God will saturate you. But tied up within this, I think the Sermon on the Mount kind of presents one good example of the way in which there's a seemingly, a seemingly like tension or contradiction that occurs. So in the Sermon on the Mount, <coughs> Jesus is like, let your light shine, right? The thing, like, let your light shine so people will see you. It's like, stand in the spotlight almost. But then at the same time, some of, so much of his message is like, don't let people see what you do. Be humble, like stay away from pride. Sometimes it's this, this tension. How do we actually like reveal what God has done within me? Like this effective presence of God that I carry versus also not trying to get the, the limelight. I think that's one of these like tensions that you already, always need to be aware of like at the forefront of your mind, particularly in the context of character. Always asking those questions, who is getting the glory? And like, what are my motivations? Couldn't help, the whole time I was preparing this, I was like, not trying to be self-deprecating and being like, oh, I'm one of the youngest in the room. But I think there is an element of, I'm probably not gonna like, teach you anything you haven't already heard. But I think rather just the challenge of it, there's not a debate about whether this is what the Bible promotes is not a question about whether this is what Jesus said. It's rather a question of like, actually, is this possible? Like, am I willing, as Patrick was talking about, the cost of following him is difficult. Because Jesus-shaped character is about serving a different king, not ourselves, but Jesus, representing a different world order, Establishing a kingdom that will last forever. Not merely one that I might be able to pass on 50% of in my will, whereas the tax man gets the other half. Who gets the glory and what are our motivations? Not particularly in the context of character, but Katia Adams, she's a, I'm pretty sure she's British. Um, author, theologian, she wrote this. She said, discipleship was not about learning. It was about learning in order to become like the rabbi himself. Discipleship was not about theoretical education, but rather a very practical apprenticeship. You didn't become a disciple simply in order to increase your knowledge. The purpose of discipleship was clear to do what the rabbi does, even to teach as the rabbi teaches. Once we realize that, it's easy to see why Mary did what Jesus in, what, it's easy to see why what Mary did and what Jesus endorsed was so revolutionary, referring to her sitting at his feet. 
to the aim as we talk about character is adopting this true, a character of true discipleship where we not only seek to learn about Jesus but also seek to learn and emulate Jesus. And the firm foundation that we're talking about, it has to be like based in humility, based in eradicating all pride and humbly coming before God so we may like continue to reflect his glory. A really simple, less of a definition, more of an explanation of humility that I heard was, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I don't know if there's like one of these literary terms that talks about phrases which changes one word and the whole meanings change, but I really like those phrases. <laughs> humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. Making fun of myself, like, can't share a message without somehow fitting St. Augustine in there. He famously said, there can only be two basic loves, the love of God unto the forgetfulness of self, or the love of self unto the forgetfulness and denial of God. I think I might put that down in your notes. That's like one of the quotes. So this morning, I think there's kind of two, we probably break into three ways in which I want to tackle this. Is saying like, actually, if we start by doing what I would say is a non-exhaustive exploration of godly character, I think there's always going to be something I'm going to miss out we're only here for a morning. We've got a lifetime to unpack the whole thing. So I'm sorry if I miss something out, which I think God has highlighted to you. So the non-exhaustive exploration of godly character, kind of touching on why and what. And then talking about actually what is godly character like in real life? Talking about maybe how. So why is character so important. I would argue that there is a biblical charge to bear good fruit. And I get the sometimes the objections can be like, oh Paddy, like isn't the isn't the whole purpose of our faith is about being in communion with God? I want to say, yeah it is, and there's but there's also more to it. Some people my Old Testament professor, he would say the, one of the most important passages in the Bible is Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. It's kind of God meeting, or like making a covenant with Abram. But in verse 3, he says, actually, and because, I'm going to paraphrase, because you are blessed, then the whole world will be blessed too. It's something that because of like our private relationship with God, there's going to be a massive corporate and public manifestation. So I hope it's not, it isn't too much about works. I spent a lot of time in a church and the rhetoric around like my peers was always like, oh, you guys, don't worry, because it's not about what you do, but it's just about who you are. And like, I kind of understand the, the, the sentiment behind it. But as I've grown up a bit more, I can't help but feel like actually you do need to take stock of what we do because what we do forms who we are. I think Patrick talked about it when we were talking about the Bridegroom series. Um, 
there's this phrase that would come out a lot, and it's that, that we are to become who we truly are. We are to become who we truly are. Like God has justified us. He's made us clean. He's sanctified us, purified us, all the adjectives you want to use. And really, our responsibility is to rise up into that status. So that's why I think, actually, what you do forms who you are. And what you do actually enables you to become who you truly are. Character is important because there's a biblical charge to bear good fruit. I think some of the key examples I see of this is this metaphor that I think a lot of the Bible authors pick up of humans being like trees. Um, if you're into podcasts, the Bible Project do like a whole series, I think, on the fact like humans are trees, or maybe less. It's called The Bible Project, Human are Trees, Google it you'll find it. But it kind of, it continuously points to like being rooted in something, growing and bearing fruit. So you pick it up in examples like Psalm chapter one or Jeremiah 17 or Ezekiel 47, just like three examples that are prominent to me about abiding in God's ways, abiding in God himself, abiding in his law, and actually all that abiding and being with him, being in communion, it has an end. And I would argue the end is the bearing of fruit. In Jeremiah 17, I guess verses like five through nine, something as the contrast between like the foolish man who doesn't trust in God versus the wise man who does. And it says actually when you trust in God, the... Um, he does not fear. He has no worries. And like, even when the heat comes, he never fails to bear fruit. On Ezekiel 47, it paints this picture of the river flowing from the temple. And then towards the end of the chapter, it paints a picture of trees that grow on either side of this, of this river that flows. It says that, and they will bear fruit because the water from the from the sanctuary flows to them. It talks about how their, their fruit will be nourishing for, for eating and also that their leaves will be for healing. So the biblical charge to bear fruit. So there is this, this pragmatic, practical purpose and outworking for our lives. But it's not exclusively our own, like our lives are not exclusively our own, but rather they serve a greater purpose. James kind of likens it to the scientific revolution of the Copernican revolution. They quite simply realized that the earth wasn't the center of the universe and we revolve around the sun. And actually what if as a culture, society, over the last 600 years or so, we've probably done the opposite We've somehow turned the, the universe to revolve around ourselves as opposed to around God. Because if the truth is everything revolves around God, we are called to subject ourselves to him, which is a challenge in and of itself, that it isn't about ourselves, even though that is the only perspective we have. So there's a biblical charge to bear good fruit. The other analogy you might use is that of the wineskins and the wine. 
What if character is a wineskin to carry the kingdom, this new wine? So our character is the wineskin. The kingdom is the wine, something that Jesus picks up um, in Matthew 9, in Mark 2, in Luke 5. So we've received this new life. But we must nurture an appropriate container or an appropriate reciprocal for this new life that we have attained. Does that make sense? Me and my wife argue about the most trivial things. One of them is my desire to always use an appropriate reciprocal container like for leftovers or for cooking, like with the right pot. Or it's like the right Tupperware to seal it in. Like... Some dishes can't use the cheap takeaway pots. Like you need the fancy ones with seals. <laughs> it's a trivial example, I know. It's just the way my brain works. Is it? But actually, like forming our character is nurturing an appropriate container for what God wants to pour into our lives, what God wants to pour through our lives as well. What I found really challenging recently is that when essentially the call to holiness you find throughout the New Testament, and in Paul's writing, he uses this language of, of like live a life worthy. Sometimes it says like live a life worthy of the calling you've received, live a life worthy of worthy of God in of itself. But it is like hard work, and it does take like a long look in the mirror to like really analyze yourself and be like, okay. I need to trade out the plastic lids on this pot bit to make it more appropriate. And again, probably an unpopular statement would be actually pursuing godly character is answering a biblical charge to change. No one likes to say like, oh, I don't want to be like, if you say like, oh, why are you no longer friends with that person? It's hard. They just want me to change. I heard, um, actually really helpful message Tim Keller and his wife were doing a message on marriage and I think it was his wife who kind of really broke this down and was like if you go into a marriage and say like I'm not willing to be changed by my partner like that marriage isn't going to work she was like that's ultimately the purpose of marriage is to like change one another and form and perfect and encourage and build up one another probably a lot of qualifications about that example with marriage <laughs> not to like my desire but God's and so when, when Jesus talks about this wineskin analogy is that rhetoric is used in the, in the context of fasting normally so it's disciplines there's these practices of formation that prepare us to receive more of the kingdom which kind of harkens back to another of our values. We believe heaven is here now, so we want to be preparing ourselves to receive heaven through us because that's God's desire to release his kingdom through us. And we can always say, oh, you know what? Like, God works through broken people. We don't need to get ourselves ready too much. I'd probably say you'd put that into like the cheap grace category. We can definitely give you countless examples of where God does work through broken people. And actually God, people are able to, most notably people in uh, like 
church leadership, spiritual authority, they are so gifted and anointed that even despite their brokenness, seemingly there's still so much impact from their ministry. And I heard someone talk about this. And we will often separate for the example of leadership. We'll say, oh, there's like anointing and then there's character. And this guy used a simple analogy. He just said, you know what? Leadership runs best on two tracks. So we want the anointing and we also want character. That's where it will run best on. There is that supernatural, spirit-filled, anointed gifting. But then there's also on the other side of it, like character in which we steward what we have received. It kind of leads us to think, oh, there's like the spiritual element and the practical element and... I don't think that's entirely helpful just to categorize them in like two and separate them entirely. It's not that character is merely about stewarding. I think character is also about like receiving God's grace and there's a supernatural element to that as well. So we talk about this, God works through broken people. Church history is essentially a long list of God working despite our failures. Because God works despite our brokenness. In many ways, we can't stop God from working. We can't stop his providence. But I think we can definitely disrupt it. We can definitely impede its manifestation amongst us. In, again, the Sermon on the Mount, or the tail end, is talking about like two types of trees, like good trees, bad trees. Even the bad trees still bear fruit. But essentially, Jesus says, but they'll bear like rotten fruit because they'll reflect the tree as well. And I couldn't help but think, gosh, wouldn't it be great if we nurtured godly character and we just stopped getting in God's way, Right? Again, most of it isn't rocket science, but it's, like, it's quite challenging. Like when you read the book of James, it's, people often say, oh, isn't that just like the antithesis to Paul? But like Paul's like the nice, palatable, justified by faith, and then James is all like, works, works, works. Actually, what if the book of James is, particularly in this context, is our character is the outworking of our internal faith. Book of James for me, it like reminds me that Jesus' power is proven effective in transforming me if I'm able to do the works, as it were. If I'm able to bear fruit, it proves that, that Jesus' work within me is effective. Which kind of leads on to it. That character is also a witness to the gospel power. Our character in and of itself is a witness to the gospel power. <coughs> that that power at work within us, God's grace, God's presence, whatever, we, whatever word we put to it, is proven powerful and effective. And so character isn't merely about being prudes and just like saying no to everything. And I've people talk about like, 
I'll use the phrase, God isn't a cosmic killjoy because he puts in like restrictions and laws. And in the same way as we nurture a godly character, isn't just saying no to everything, but rather being authentic to who he is rather than our desires, godly character is reflecting this abundant, joy-filled, robust, fruitful, eternal life. If that's enough adjectives in one sentence. Godly character is holy and set apart. Like it does abstain and it does withdraw from certain things, but in an unarticulate way, is always to get hold of the good stuff and to reflect the good stuff. Because we are to, to be an example. I love the, the picture Paul paints. 2 Corinthians 3 it talks about essentially being like a living epistle so that we ourselves would be like a letter. He's likening it to, he recognizes the power of his letters that he writes to communities and he's actually like, your lives should be the same thing. Be living epistles of the gospel. Furthermore, I used to think um, this was the, the go-to passage for youth ministry. It was like 1 Timothy 4, because it merely said, like, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. So that had to just like, only apply to youth ministry. But so when Paul wrote to, to Timothy, his protege, who would have been like younger in comparison. He said, don't, like, don't, look, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Like be an example. Let your character be a witness to the power of the gospel, but also nurture it as well. Like pay attention to it actively. As I said, Genesis 12, like 1 to 3. I think what it, what it speaks to me of is how we are to be a conduit of God's blessing. We are to mediate that between God and the world in many ways. But I think the, the challenge, or what I would say is the heartbreaking reality, is there is often like a, a, a dissonance, a, a contrast between actually the Christian message that we ascribe to, the Christian message that we celebrate and talk about, contrast towards actually the, the character that's, that's often displayed. This is why it is actually what we do does matter. So the whole, it's not about what you do, but who you are. Actually, it is about what you do because that reflects and reveals who you are. And I think we've spent like months talking about who we are. We are children. We are clean, pure, set free. We're righteous. We're holy. What we do matters, how we live, how we talk even like what it is that we seek. Like Jesus' call was to seek first the kingdom. 
particularly, I say these comments not from what I see so much in our community here, but often like my wife will kind of pass over a phone from like social media and be like, do you remember these guys that we used to know from such and such a place? Or wasn't this like one of your friends from uni? What, it, what is it that we seek, even as Christians? Do we seek like a worldly status? Do we seek reputation or material things, possessions? I think one of them that struck me recently was just like, gosh, how, how much do we seek just trying to be cool and accepted, and like reputable on face value in the world? And again, this is probably like my internal processing from <laughs> things I've seen from like old friends. Um, and rather than being like angry or judgmental, it just makes me sad. So actually when we think about Christian character, one of the important things is often how do we treat people in the little things? I didn't even add it to the list, so, but it's like how do we treat our family and those we supposedly love the most, let alone work colleagues or the barista that we get our daily coffee from. I talk a lot about coffee from the front. I like barely ever frequent coffee shops, although I like, do make a lot of it at home. How do we treat colleagues, cashiers, baristas? How do we treat people in traffic? And then, gosh, that's a, that's a true test of your character. Get behind the wheel for two minutes and you quickly lose your salvation. <laughs> really poignantly at the moment, actually, like, how do we treat or think or pray about our enemies? Or at least the people we probably classify as our enemies. It's really easy to pray for Ukrainians, but, like, how easy is it to pray for Russians at the moment? Or people named Vladimir. Like, our character is important. Again, people. Um, I, was, I was talking with one of the young adults last night. I was saying, like, my sport is basketball. And as soon as I start making any NBA references, they're totally over people's head. It's like, no one knows anything about basketball. But I'll forgive you. This doesn't need basketball knowledge to get it. Um, in the NBA, like, they love tattoos. Just everyone has, like, tattoos all over them. And a common one you'll see, they'll get tattoos that just say, like, only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. Because they don't want anyone else to cast judgment on them. And, like, in many ways, that, that is the, the call of Christians. Like, we're not called to judge before we really judge ourselves. We're reminded that we are under judgment from the judge. But I bring this, this whole topic of judgment up because talking about Christian character, talking about a, a character being a witness to God's power is that the world is always judging us. And we need to, to humbly accept that we are being judged by the world. Again, I, I believe they are, they probably wouldn't describe it in this way, but they are judging the effectiveness of the gospel by looking at the outward fruit of our lives and saying, actually, well, what difference does Jesus make in your life? 
since you are like no different to the Joneses next door. Because I think the world will see the controversies in the church and they'll judge essentially Jesus by that. Like when you talk about the Diocese of Chichester in the news, it's probably more famous for all the, the scandals and abuse. Like the bishop, great godly man, but you Google him and it's just like video accounts of him um, like in courtrooms talking about all the abuse scandals that have happened over the years. The world sees all the failings of moral leaders where it's like seemingly a dime a dozen nowadays. Just any Christian leader gets like a bit of prominence and there's some sort of infidelity or moral failing issues with like, yeah, all sorts come out of the woodwork. This isn't a good... And then quickly you see all the, the worldly morals just seep into the Christian's fears. So whether it is materialism or, or money, sexuality, there's nothing distinct about it anymore. And I would probably hold to, to the notion that actually our character, not merely as leaders, but just as the whole body, it needs to, to tell the world a better story. Like it's not an articulate way to describe it but like Jesus is better like I don't know people want to say like by what metric are you measuring that I'm just like every metric Jesus is better so although although character isn't exclusively about morals I'd probably argue like Jesus shaped morality is a big part of it Because 2033, our vision as a church, it isn't, the vision isn't for spiritual sugar highs. And that isn't also, that, that isn't the means by which we're going to get there either. But it is the, the totality of our beings being, of our beings and our surrounding communities being permeated by God's presence. Because that's what impacts our character. Does that sound all right? I'd really tried not to go off in any of those personal rants, so I apologize. So what is godly character? That is the, not merely the million dollar question, but kind of as John would write at the end of his gospel, I'm not sure this room has enough space to store the books that would define what godly character is. And even throughout the Bible, there are innumerable examples, and this is one of the times where I'm going to miss out, like your favorite, the most poignant, the one that has like, impacted you the most. I'm probably just going to focus on a few from the New Testament. The obvious one is usually David. What I like about David is he kind of strikes the balance between being very human, but then also representing this like Jesus archetype at the same time. David was the worshiper who came before God. I also think David like, had a great deal of integrity, but in like, a very realistic way. The, the account of when 
even when Saul is pursuing him, and he had every opportunity just to, to kill his and vanquish his enemy. He had integrity to hold to what God had said. So like, you want to touch the anointed one. So he only just cut the hem of his garment. Now what about, what if we learn from, from David's character about the fact that when his child died, he mourned, he like leaned into that. Where Jesus would say, blessed are those who mourn. Like David kind of shows that already. Or what about how David displayed the character to repent and recognize his failings? So after the whole debacle with Bathsheba and Uriah, when Nathaniel came and confronted him, and he wasn't like particularly aware of it until Nathaniel really brought it up, I'd like to say he, he humbly repented. And as you read Psalm 51, that is someone who has embraced and engaged with the brokenness of their life and received God's grace. That's one example of great godly character. Not merely one that can slay giants, but also one that can come before God and be like, God, crush me because of my iniquities. Like, blot out my sin. Right, what is godly character? Again, maybe it's recency bias because I was reading it last week, but Paul's, um, what he described as the pastoral epistles like they wrote to Timothy and Titus, whereas it explicitly lays out moral demands on um, elders, deacons, widows, like, go away, read those three epistles, they're really short and easy. Um, I do want to unpack a bit of the context of them, that actually, although it's, it seems as though it's pretty exclusive, just talking to these specific groups, so there's a bit of like, that doesn't apply to me, I'd argue that it should. <laughs> that sound all right? <laughs> so yeah, Paul, Paul writes these letters specifically to his spiritual sons, like Timothy and Titus. They're not written to communities, they are written to individuals, they're also written with specific corrective instructions. So they are corrective, not instructive. Does that make sense? They're in response to certain issues, which kind of is why like, only certain issues are highlighted. So that's why I would argue that, that it is more about character. And also, whereas a lot of people want to say like, ooh, Timothy's a bit dodgy because, you know, we're egalitarian here and we don't go for the whole gender piety or like male headship stuff. I would argue that they are gender inclusive, that it isn't like, yeah. So we are into like, just because all the clergy are men. Like, <laughs> don't read too much into that. And even as you read through these long lists, it's that often they're not difficult to comprehend. I think the challenge comes when we actually take stock of our lives and take them seriously. People often talk about um, 1 Corinthians 13, talking about love, and like you can replace love with the word God, and that's perfect. God is patient, God is kind. 
God does never fail. But it's always the thing of like, well, what if you then put your name in there? That's like the spiritual love MOT test that I always fail. And if we start doing the same thing with, with these lists, that's when it becomes challenging. It's kind of in 1 Timothy 3. Again, it's like, although he's talking in the context of overseers, I believe these apply to us. I'll unpack it a bit more. It's like they are to be above reproach. I would say there is a calling as a Christian to be an exemplary member of society. Like it isn't, it's not great PR to be like, we're to be goody goody two shoes. But ultimately we are. We are the people who know goodness personified and we are to mediate that and share it to the world. So we are to be exemplary members of society. We're above reproach. There's no, there's no cause for accusation or wrong because of the way we live our lives. In which no, there's no failure because of our character. The, the disappointment is directed towards us. I would argue that the contemporary understanding of character is often just don't get caught. Like as long as no one sees you, it's okay. But, but godly character is to love honestly and truthfully, even when no one's looking. And it goes on through this long list. You can go through it, then kind of picks it up even in 1 Timothy 6, talking a bit about money. It's like, don't be a lover of money. Love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Rather, I'd argue, actually, when we embrace and practice and form this godly character, it protects us. Like in chapter 6, Timothy goes on about actually, like some of his contemporaries, they have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves. Pierced themselves with many griefs. I guess at the end of 2 Timothy, he talks about one of his peers, Demas. And she says, like, Demas has left because he loved the world, loved the things of the world too much. Demas is a character that actually, character, person, that's like referenced elsewhere as one of his peers, contemporaries, fellow servants of Jesus. Or you can pick up, there's an innumerable set of locations with different lists I'd argue are very easy to understand. It is like there is a basic, plain reading of them. So in Romans 12, that's another great list of what it means for godly character. So be a lover of good things and hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be holy. Again, this is a bit like disjointed. Even like 1 Timothy 6, he's talking about be rich in good deeds. Be generous, be willing to share. These are all like basic ideas of character we try and teach our five-year-olds. I'm holding out for that. My daughter's two and a half. She needs some of these, being rich in good deeds. But particularly 1 Timothy, if we take these as just being exclusive to church leaders, just to clergy, what would the impact of that be? 
Because really we're saying like, oh, actually, you know, Paddy and Patrick and, and James, they need to be above reproach. They need to be faithful to one woman or respectable. And they should probably be like not drunk or violent. But the rest of us, hitting the booze hard, don't need to worry about what we do. It's like quite a slippery slope when we get in when we get into that thinking actually this is just for church leaders. You can then almost argue it from another angle of saying, well, the distinctiveness of the Old Testament priests, like all the regulations put on the Levites, well that's all been like succeeded by Jesus. So you get that in, in Hebrews. Um, like chapters 5 through 8 talks about that how Jesus has become the high priest in the order of Melchizedek but what we're constantly reminded in the New Testament is the whole church has been brought into the priesthood we are included in the priesthood like the church as a whole particularly Peter picks it up and again I think I brought this up the other day but it hit me like a ton of bricks the end of 1 Timothy kind of, I would argue, gives a reason for this corrective teaching. And he's just talked, talked about being rich in good deeds, being generous, being willing to share. I would argue that all this teaching is motivated by Paul's desire. We find at the tail end of verse 19. It's so, they, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life also happened to be in the lectionary for the morning prayer today if you're around Paul's teaching was motivated by his desire for them to take hold of, of that which is truly life in many ways Paul was protective just like God was when he gave Moses the law protective from the snares and he wanted to lead them to a place where they would flourish does that sound alright? Not a cosmic killjoy, but trying to lead us to a place of abundance, of flourishing. I want to share a few more things, and then I think we're going to stop for coffee for a bit. I was struck and, and reminded on Sunday, listening to um, the panel talking about prayer and, and intercession and, and Roger, he made this comment, Roger Verhull, and he simply said, like, you know what, the longer we live, the more disappointment we will experience. The longer we live, the more disappointment we will experience. It struck me because it's true. And again, it's one of these, you can't really sugarcoat that. Like on my arm, I've got a reference to um, John 16, where he says, you know, in this world you will have troubles. The longer we live, the more disappointment we will experience. And what is godly character? I think godly character is persistence and patience. And again, Roger kind of, he shared from the end of the book of Habakkuk. He was talking about persisting despite not seeing the fruit. 
So Habakkuk 3 from verse 17 to 19 said, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep on the pen and no cattle on the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Savior. And then he says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. So even though I haven't seen it yet, even though I'm still in the valley, I'm persistent and I'm patient because I know who God is. Because I know God is the one who enables me to tread on the heights. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or you find um, in Hebrews, you get the, what people would describe as the faith discourse in chapter 11. Faith in action is kind of the, uh, the title that I get in my Bible. But also when you read through it, there is a long list of disappointments in which people, despite their disappointments, they persisted in faith. So Hebrews 11 verse 13, it said, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Like Abraham was given this great promise that his descendants would outnumber the grains of sand. Yeah, I don't remember him having that many kids and grandkids when he died. That's true character to maintain that persistence. And as a result of that, kind of coming off the back of that great faith discourse, the author of Hebrews, then in, in chapter 12, he says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all the examples of those who have gone before us, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us as we fix our eyes on Jesus. I would say in a previous life, working with youth, it required persistence, often without any fruit. I would say I was full of faith, but often there was little fruit. And sometimes over the years, as they matured, you know, they flourished and they created great fruit. I think my, my great privilege is, has been seeing some of these teenagers that years past have grown up, got married, and then like become, and like one of them, I'm like, particularly fills me with pride. She went off, trained as a midwife, went and planted a church in a different city, then like her and her husband, they had a baby. And then just like seeing her flourish into the woman she is. That's one of the great privileges. You get to, to see the fruit. I'm sure like Sarah's got even more stories of this. Seeing just young people flourish. You get to see the fruit. But what about the times when the fruit never comes? And often actually, you know, the trees go rotten to use strong language. 
sometimes you've, like I know, sometimes I've invested years like speaking truth, pouring love into people, and you know what? They still choose drugs and immorality and crime or anything. Godly character requires persistence and patience. The other, the other side of it that really tests your character, kind of tests your pride, is when you invest all this thing into people and it seems as though actually the fruit comes at someone else's hands. Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, he talked about, you know, like, I planted a seed, Apollos watered it. He's trying to dispel any, like, division amongst people who are claiming to be disciples of Paul or Apollos or someone else. But he was like, but ultimately, God's the one that makes it grow. So despite who gets to see the harvest, to trust your character, to be like, I'm still going to celebrate. Being really honest. So I, I was a youth worker here for four years, and then I essentially stopped being the youth worker, but didn't leave the community. And then um, Archie Croft, guy who was like one of our interns, he came on, took on the youth. And I had to really struggle with pride, because... It was as if he saw way more fruit and he was harvesting all this stuff in like one year of ministry. There was like, yeah, that'll, that'll test you and that'll make you go to God and get like a smack around the ears. <laughs> At least that's how God loves me. But Yeah. I think lastly, before we grab a coffee, I would say, Godly character is a constant choice. Godly character is a constant choice. Again, if you're really keen on your lectionary reading, it's going to come up tomorrow, but Deuteronomy 30, particularly verse 19, Moses, he says, I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. These are always the options you have. Now choose life. Again, I said it to you before, practice makes permanent. Our character is always a constant choice. Discipleship to Jesus is a constant choice where you wake up and say, you know, not my will be done, but yours every day. And that continues to form our character. I would say this isn't particularly um, traditionally pastoral. When you say sometimes, like, well, how do we do it? Like, you just... You just have to do it. You, need, you can't wait for the motivation to come because if you're waiting for motivation, it won't come. If you're waiting for the conditions to be perfect, they'll never be perfect. We just need to do it. My wife and I, years ago, we lived in a flat and um, I remember having a conversation with Patrick and Philly and we said, oh, we want to host more people. Like We're just praying that God will give us a bigger house. And Philly kind of turned around and was just like, no, you just need to start hosting people and doing it. Maybe you just need to buy a bigger table. So we bought a bigger table. <laughs> and actually kind of what you see is you just a constant choice to orientate yourself towards God. And again, we're talking about there's no plagiarism in the kingdom. I was struck slash amused by this when I was reading Hebrews. So Hebrews 6 verse 12. Another reminder of just being imitators. Imitate God, but 
the writer of Hebrews is also just like, imitate other people. He says, we don't want you to become lazy, but actually our desire is for you to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So let's just copy other people's examples. Well, I hope that was helpful. I think as I stated at the beginning, in many ways, it's probably a bit like teaching you to suck eggs, a lot of what I'm saying. And um, I hope rather it's more just food for thought as we continue to reflect. Maybe one person said, like, actually, you know, coming into Lent particularly, good food for thought. So I pray that it is useful to you. So we kind of paused halfway through talking about the way in which godly character is a constant choice. To unpack this a bit in the book of Colossians, I feel like he, Paul gives a good example of this. Particularly Colossians 3, my reading of it is that because of Jesus' work, because of his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his giving of the spirit, like we are subject to transformation. So this whole rhetoric of like, we actually are called to change, this is in light of that. So chapter three starts with, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Kind of again, this is the rhetoric of our status has been changed, it's been done. Um, I heard someone they also use like a visual aid to it, but they described all the epistles as they always start with a long series of done sections. It's like this is what Jesus has done. The work is completed. And then only once we establish what has been done, then we can do. That makes sense? Even without the visual aid? But there is a spiritual reality, as like chapter three, verse one lays out that you have been raised with Christ, so we are to become who we truly are. But within that, there is this call to, to leave behind the old self and become a new self. And I couldn't help, as I was pondering about this, I was like, gosh, this almost sounds a bit like this self-help positive thinking that like Oprah would promote. Probably shouldn't like, yeah ridicule Oprah too much publicly, but like, it's like, see, believe, achieve, all that kind of stuff. There isn't what Paul's getting at with it. He's like, Jesus has actually done something effectual. He has transformed your very nature, your reality, and now it's for us to like step into that. But it does require, require responsibility and action. So go on in verse two, chapter three, to say, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. We have this choice to, a choice to, but a choice of what to align ourselves to. And Paul's constantly saying, align yourself with God. Align yourself with God revealed through Jesus. Align yourself with these realities. So when I say it requires a responsibility and an action from us, there's always this inherent like, what are you going to do about it? I, years ago, when I was working with young people, I went on a training course, it was a coaching course, and they used this great acronym called GROW. But it's always like, what are your goals? What's the reality? What are your options? And it would always end with, what are you going to do about it? 
And I'm like, Paul, he was quite bold in his writing and I feel like he does the same things. Like, what are you going to do about it? So verse five, he brings it up. He's like, you know what? This is the option that I think you should do. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. So he starts listing all these, you could say, abuses. You could like potentially read it as, um, as well as like vices, abuses, as like distortions of things which could potentially be good. But although I think there's a potential to read it in that way, I think it's still just, they are abuses that are outside the rightful context and Paul wants us to stay well clear of. So he lists them in verse five. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because new life in Jesus is a call to a higher standard. The Sermon on the Mount, like Jesus uses this language of, you have heard it said, but now. He's always like ups the ante calls us higher and it's not merely enough to be faithful to your wife on a legal level or like not go around punching people or more he's actually you know what even just looking at a woman even just having a bad thought about someone that is a step too far and godly character is aligning ourselves to Jesus' standards not our own not what we think is acceptable so the call is to holiness the call isn't merely to good enough or like better than so-and-so. It's like Jesus is always the standard that we are attaining for. But I often say this, I hope when we say that, it's always we are looking to him and being pulled upwards as opposed to like looking to him and realizing how far down we are and then just sinking further. So it's supposed to be like convicting to draw us upwards as opposed to condemning to like sink us further. So Paul, he has these lists of abuses. You could argue verse five kind of are the outward, physical, um, probably like more sexually orientated abuses. And then in verse eight and nine, he says, but you also must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. So you get the outward physical abuses, but then you also get what you could argue are like inward is the character of our speech. Because Paul is equally concerned with the external and the internal because both of them impact the well-being of a community. They impact the well-being of an individual and a family and a community. That's what we're after, complete transformation. But then Paul uses and like introduces this metaphor of our character being likened to clothing that we can remove and, and put on. It says that you have taken off your old self, in verse 9. And you have put on the new self. I'll send to Sarah, <clears throat> not my wife Sarah, Sarah Binney. Classic chank to me problem, too many Sarahs. So Monday night, 
our daughter's like two and a half. She sleeps really well normally. And so me and, me and my wife, Sarah, really notice it when she doesn't sleep well. So for whatever reason, she ended up like having a fever. It was like temperature, like 40 degrees. And then when Mary's sick with a fever, she just pukes, like vomits. And so she's in a nice bed. She's got like 17 layers of different clothing, which is just intricate to get on. Um, I'm brutal. My mum tries to buy me baby clothes. If I can't figure it out, like within three seconds, it just goes straight in the bed. But I say this. So she was kept waking up in the night like five or six times, and every time she'd puke, and then you'd be like, oh, crap. And she's got loads of hair, so you have to like get out of her hair, and it's all over her clothes. And so we're constantly removing this defiled clothing from her. The clothing wasn't good because it was covered in vomit. It wasn't good for her. It wasn't pleasant for her. It caused her distress, you could also say. It also wasn't pleasant for anyone else. I don't know whether I'm just like, it's an amusing story. She then ended up in our bed. I woke up at about 5 a.m. because she'd vomited on my back. That's like a fun story. <laughs> but just to like continue that imagery, the reason I say it is because this clothing that has been defiled, we then removed straight away. Like, I am not good first thing in the morning. I was up and changed really quickly on Tuesday morning. Like, Sarah, she cleaned the sheets. And you can make the obvious, like, metaphorical application. There is this old self that just plain isn't good for us, isn't pleasant, isn't nice, doesn't bear good fruit. And Paul's reminding us we need to take it off. Because there's plenty of other op- like, times in life where we recognize that we need to remove that clothing. So whether it's vomit or anger and malice, slander or lies, that's what Paul's saying, remove that. That's before you even get into the physical stuff. It's because there's these certain behaviors, certain character traits that plain just aren't suitable. They are inappropriate for our new life. And I said, Colossians is another example where Paul talks about live a life worthy. And he picks it up in chapter 1, verse 10, to my living, so you may live a life worthy of the Lord. But remove all these clothing. I was reminded we, we used to live on the Wiston estate and our neighbors, they had a right situation because there is a difference between like the hidden obvious. So still like, I hope you got half a finger in Colossians 3. You get the, the list of these abuses in, in verse 5, that they are outward, physical, quite difficult to hide. It's like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Greed, all your idolatry. They're the seen, outward, physical ones, but then there's also the hidden ones. It's like how easy for is it how easy is it for me to hide my my anger and my malice or my slander of people. But God is concerned with both the hidden and the seen. So we used to live on the Western estate and our neighbours did this situation where their kitchen just stopped working. And then what the estate realized was they had mice in their kitchen 
but it wasn't mice that you could see and lay traps. Apparently, all the mice were concerned about were like eating all the electricity cables like in the walls. I poked my head in and it was like, I don't build things. So like the ceiling was out, the walls were out. It was chaos. But um, Tom Wright, when he's commentating on Colossians 3, he likens these ungodly characteristics. He compares them to vermin that we must kill. And it's not like the lovely Disney fairy tale where like you leave out cheese for the mice. It's like, no, these are not welcome. They shouldn't be welcome. You shouldn't accommodate them. You need to kill them. That's why we take them off and replace them with better clothes. Does that make sense? So again, so it says, you know, you've put on the new stuff, but it's being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Thinking differently is a key component of us choosing this new godly character. And as you like, as it continues down, you get a wider discourse, verse 12 to 17, it's sort of like, what we do is important. We need to constantly choose to clothe ourselves with. These are the, the, you could argue, these are at the core of a social fabric which promotes life and flourishing. It's imitating these character traits of, of new things. So verse 12, it says, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. These are the character traits which will contribute and see 2033 come. Or another translation that said, tender-hearted, kind, humble, meek. It says, ready to put up with anything. This is again one of these challenging ideas actually within a social context. Am I willing to put up with anything? Right, so how do we how do we shape godly character? Again, this is another question that you could probably spend a lifetime having only just brushed the surface. I want to offer just, again, not an exhaustive, but a few contributions to the question. I want to say we wouldn't be a sticking to our guns and our tradition as charismatics without saying, you know what, actually, to develop godly character, we need it by a supernatural impartation by God's grace through the Holy Spirit. It's actually meeting God and his presence in a physical, tangible way. So both like forming our character is in many ways our responsibility. As I made before, sometimes it's just our responsibility to get outside and get in the rain and get wet. When Paul wrote to, to Titus, Titus 2, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. 
it, like the grace of God, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for this blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself for people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This grace has appeared to us. We encounter God and it teaches us to, to say no. It teaches us to cling to his ways because it's by God's grace that empowers our transformation, that gives us the ability to engage in these practices of formation. Again, we read in Colossians how there is like a call for our knowledge to be renewed. Romans 12, it talks about, Patrick loves it, he's taught into greater depth about it, that our mind, our imagination would be renewed in truth. And I want to suggest we need to be renewed in truth because our character is often shaped not, not often, our character is shaped by what we perceive God to be like. So in Matthew 18, you find the parable of the, well, my, the Bible editors in my Bible have said, the unmerciful servant. The servant who like owed lots of money, but then was, he received mercy, and was forgiven them, but then he goes away and he's like choking people and being violent with people who owed him money. And he hadn't properly perceived the mercy and grace he received. He didn't perceive the nature of that master. And that's what formed his character. So I want to say, actually, our character is shaped by how we perceive God to be like. Again, Roger Verhoey, he made this powerful but seemingly simple statement by, you know what? We need to have a, a constantly renewed revelation of God's goodness. Because when we know what, what God is like, that will shape our character as well. And lastly, I think it's just about practicing remembrance. Our character is a response to, to who God is and what God has done. And I would argue that actually we do, we remember who he is through, through repetition and through ritual. They're not merely like bad words. I don't mean just like empty rituals. But there's a reason why we want to say actually you need to read your Bible plurally. It's not just like one and done. But like you just keep going through it over and over again. There are the, the rituals of formation. And like I get rituals could be like a bad word. But in the fact, we, we celebrate Holy Communion together. That is like another ritual that we get to do. We come to church. We decide for, for a season ahead of Easter Sunday, we're going to like abstain from certain things. These are all like rituals we partake in. They're rhythms. But it's a method in which we get to fight forgetfulness and remember who God is, what he's done. That sound right? Right. 
I naturally want to say that, right, we're, like, we're coming into land. And then I heard this story by someone saying, whoever was preaching, said, we're coming into land, and 20 minutes later, like, we're still circling. We're just circling, guys. It's a bit foggy. <laughs> and they just kept preaching for like two hours. So I'm trying not to do that. But I want to finish by actually saying, you know, godly character it is firm foundations for life. Like, how does this actually play out in real life? And particularly within our cultural context. Um, I want to tell you a brief parable. I'm sorry if you heard it before, but it's one of my favorites. It's not from the Bible. The parable goes that there are two fish swimming along, and then they encounter another older fish coming the opposite way. And the older fish, being socially adept, he says, oh, how's it going, boys? How's the water? And they just like nod, because they're probably adolescent and awkward. They continue swimming along, and then one of the fish turns to the other one and says, what is water? The other one says, I have no idea. <laughs> but it's this thing of like, particularly when it comes to like just being aware of the cultural currents that we swim in, it's often the most powerful things that are the ones which are hardest to perceive, the ones which are so prevalent and so around us. And so again, I, I said it at the beginning, I hope I said it more but often like godly character, it's not usually a question about whether Jesus said it or Jesus modeled it. The argument is usually more about whether we believe it's actually possible. Like no one ever argues that Jesus said like, actually just don't even lust after a woman. The debate is always like, can I achieve it? And again, it's, it's acknowledging that actually swimming like against the currents of society, maintaining a godly character is challenging. And I've only been trying to do it for like 13 years. So if I were wearing a hat, I'd take it off to some of you which have been far more persistent than I have. Again, it's a bad analogy, but I, I'm essentially for as long as I can remember being in church, there was just an abundance of pastries wherever I went. So I'm always like, I need to give up like sugar, like specifically refined sugar and especially pastries. Like I just can't help myself. I will eat 17 if Dylan's not around to eat the others. But, but it's also like they just don't agree with me. So afterwards I'm like, that was a moment of pleasure on my lips and I'm just spending the rest of the day like feeling rough. But I'm perpetually bombarded by the convenience of it. And then it's like I go into a shop and like the easy option is just to buy a bag of donuts. <laughs> like this is a really trivial example. Like also just being honest like anyway. But it's actually hard to like amidst our cultural waters that we swim in to maintain this godly character. When Paul wrote to the Colossians, he's like, be, be tender-hearted, be kind, be humble, meek, ready to put up with anything. That just isn't the way the water flows that we swim in. But that is what we're called to. Even namely, I would say like, 
to distill it down like godly character, it always has to start with humility. I've been really struck. There's a parable in Luke 14. I find it interesting when kind of the same parables are vaguely similar across like the three synoptic gospels. So it also kind of comes up in Matthew 23. That's more in the context of religious leaders. But Luke 14, verses 7 to 11, he tells this parable about people who, who are like dinner guests. And they come and they sit at the most esteemed places. But he's essentially just like, if you do that, and then someone more esteemed than you comes, then you'll have to like be removed and go move. Just start at the uh, less esteemed place and then get moved up by me. And so verse 11, and he said, because those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Being humbled like isn't a nice experience when someone else does it to you. But he said, those who humble themselves, those who voluntarily choose to put themselves at a lower position, they will be the ones who will be exalted. That is the radical humility that, that God calls us to. And again, I acknowledge that it is much easier said than done, where we get to relinquish control and power and agency in radical humility. I'd much rather be in control. Or what about John chapter 13? This is the account of Jesus and his disciples. Um, it's also where like, he talks about Judas and Peter both betraying him. And he washes his disciples' feet. That's like great disc, like dialogue between Jesus and Peter. And I have to admit, I usually read that and focus on the fact that Peter's all like, no, 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 you can't wash me. And Jesus is like, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. So Peter's like, wash all of me. And Jesus is like, no, you've already been washed completely. I just need to refresh your feet. And I've always just focused on that that element of like, oh, we need to come to Jesus for that daily spiritual refreshing. It's like, I think I've stood at the front and preached that message. I'm not saying that's bad, but in the context of humility, I still wholeheartedly believe in that message too. But in this context, I want to say, the model and example of, of Jesus is revealed as he reveals servanthood, as Jesus embodies it. But he doesn't just like embody it and then we're like, should we be doing that? Or is that just your job? He's quite explicit. He calls us to, to do it in the same way. We are called to wash other people's feet. We are called to humble ourselves. Because Jesus humbled himself and it was, in Philippians 2, you get that, I think most people think of it as like a hymn that Paul quotes where Jesus emptied himself and God exalted him to the highest place. Because those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. So John 13 is both a call and an invitation. What if it is simultaneously a burden and a privilege? What if actually washing people's feet like whatever that might look like isn't merely something we must do but rather you know what like something happens in that and it is such a privilege 
to share in Jesus' ministry. This is something, yeah, I'll leave it. You get like sudden thoughts. You're like, oh, I'll share that story. No. Um. But ultimately, amongst all the things we value culturally, like washing people's feet is not one of them. Like humbling yourselves is not one of the, like the highest virtue. You usually just get called a doormat or something. But our Christian character must revere Jesus-like, Jesus-shaped, self-sacrificial love as the highest virtue. Because ultimately that is greatness. I heard someone put it this way. It was like, to test your character, when you walk into the room, what is your attitude? Is it a, here I am? Or do you walk into the room like, oh, there you are. Get the distinction? It's like, what is it that you emphasize? But it also begs the question, like, why is it that you must emphasize that? Do you walk in and need to be seen, or do you walk in and desire to see other people? I would probably argue that we live in a here-I-am world, where the default, the society is shaped in such a way everything is here I am going back to that tension like the world is much better at letting their light shine rather than an anonymous hiddenness of the Christian life one person even traced it back to it's like September 2009 when Facebook introduced the like button apparently this was like another paradigm shifting moment just after like the iPhone was invented where actually everything wasn't merely this like pure, I'm sharing like what happened in my life. It was like, everything was motivated by garnering praise and attention for myself. Essentially, everything was, here I am, here I am, look at me. Everything was, praise me. As I have exalted myself in whatever place. Even the fact that you go to a job interview and you're essentially saying, like, I am the best. I mean, Dylan have a hilarious joke going back to playing table tennis, but it was just such an overt, ridiculous statement of pride and zero humility of saying, like, no, no, I am the best. There's no question about it. But jokes aside, actually, a lot of society is like that. Job interviews are just one classic example. It says, I am the best, pick me. I'm better than him, him, her, her, him, him, and probably you once I get in the door. Like, that's what happens in a job interview, though. Like, you submit your CV, and it's just like, look how amazing I am. I heard someone use this great phrase, partly because it is alliteration, so it must help you learn better. He said, we must transform self-seeking status into secure servanthood. Transform self-seeking status into secure servanthood. Because the gospel is perpetually one exchange for another. We'll talk about like we lay it down at the foot of the cross because Jesus has taken it upon himself. 
Whereas Isaiah 61 is that great language. It's like the exchange. Beauty for ashes, joy for mourning. That's the exchange. So what if we exchanged our self-seeking, insecure orphanhood for secure adoption as a child of God? Again, it's another one that's like easier said than done. But I think if we can grasp that, because when we're still in that place of being of self-seeking status, I don't think we are truly free to exercise radical humility because we are still slaves. You always have to like make the difference between what kind of slaves Paul's talking about when he uses that language. Like slaves to God, slave to righteousness, slave for Christ, or is it a slave to these old things? But I love it in Romans when you, when you kind of trace the narrative path, as it were. I see it kind of chapters six and seven kind of like expounds the futility of our life before Jesus. And then eight is the really like, but God moment. And you pick it up like eight verse 14 or so. We're reminded that we've received this spirit of adoption. We're no longer orphans in the world, but we are co-heirs with Christ. I remember my mother, she turned to me after um, the funeral of her mother, who like, her dad died first, then her mother died. She turned around to me as we were leaving the crematorium, and she said, oh, am I an orphan now? And it struck me. But actually, even like, when those like, physical parents are still alive, often we still live as orphans. And I'm sure we've done a whole series on like, the Father Heart of God, and we tap into that, and that's another one that we can explore for years, like personally explore with God for years, and I think I've still not grasped it enough. Romans 8 says, 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Isn't that good? We are co-heirs with him and we get to share in his glory. There's like plenty of mystery in that, but plain reading, that's good news. It's there we get to share in his glory and God just showers us with his blessing and love. It's because of like Paul's explanation and revelation of what God has achieved in us. That's why we get to read uh, Jesus' baptism in like Matthew 3, for instance, and say, you know what, actually God says the same things over me. He says, like, this is my son 
Like this is my daughter in whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And what we get in that blessing is there is acceptance. When he says, you know what, this is my son. He says the same thing over us. We are accepted. There is affection in it. He says, like, in whom I love. is not merely that God tolerates you, but actually he likes you, he loves you, he wants to be with you. There is affection in it. And there is affirmation. It's like, with him I'm well pleased. I love it because Jesus hasn't done anything in his ministry yet. And that's how God looks at us. Because we are co-heirs, we are in Christ. So ultimately this, our endeavors to transform self-seeking status into secure servanthood is relatively futile by ourselves. But it is with God, it is by his grace that it is achieved. So when we consider like, oh, is it here I am or is it there you are? You could say that actually because of God's blessing, God's acceptance, affirmation, affection to Jesus, Jesus' whole ministry was there you are. So when we talk about just the difficulties, the challenges of swimming upstream in our spiritual, our cultural waters, we are strengthened and affirmed by Jesus who promotes a there you are message in a very much here I am world. So it's when we get to embody these characteristics, that was where I believe we will bear good fruit in the world. Maybe more like specific application, godly character to consider, to take away. Again, it's acknowledging life is hard. There are so many things that I wish I could get a redo on. I waste far too much time thinking if I could go back to being 13, I'd like attend church and actually pay attention in school. And those are trivial examples. Then there's like the real ones where you know how much pain you've caused. Life is full of regrets. And particularly where there'll come a time when there are more things to look back on than to probably look forward on. And we need godly character to aid us through that. It's when we transition from from one role to the next, whether it's like socially, relationally, vocationally, maybe it's just physically. Again, I don't mean to sound patronizing, but even like, just getting into my 30s and having a child and not having all the sleep in the world, I'm like, oh, I'm not Superman anymore. <laughs> like, I wake up stiff and tired. Like, it's like, how do we deal with that? Maybe more pertinent is, how do we deal with offense? Like, that is so rife in modern society. Everyone is offended. I always hear these terms about like cancel culture. Everyone gets canceled because they say something that might have offended someone. Or someone is like discovered to have said something many years ago and then is canceled because of that. 
But ultimately, I think the Sermon on the Mount, it ends with this notion and Jesus says, like, who are you going to be? Are you going to be wise or foolish? Are you going to build your house on the rock or on the sand? Because in both cases, he promises that the storms will come, the winds will blow. And the question is always, like, will your house stand? Will we build our foundations? Will our character be forged by rock, by Jesus? Because we will be the one who is offending people and we have to humbly come and apologize and rectify a situation, whether it was justified or not. We will be the ones subject to offense. I feel like I probably do both in equal measure. And I need more of godly character to just to like help me not being crushed and stop my house falling down all the time. But ultimately it comes to, again, in Matthew 7, he says a wise man is one who hears these words and puts them into practice, or he does them, depending on your translation. So it sounds a bit like a challenging end, but it's always going to be a, what are you going to do about it? Again, I think it's on your page of notes, but that quote by Augustine, he says, there can only be two basic loves, the love of God unto the forgetfulness of self or the love of self unto the forgetfulness and denial of God. I would put a lot of money on saying that we all want to love God. We want to go for the first option. John the Baptist, he's in John chapter three. He said, like, he must increase, I must decrease. It's less of me, more of him. That's our, I don't know what you say, the gold standard, but that's what we aspire to. Thank you for joining us on the Roots podcast. To connect with our community and to find other resources, visit chanctonbury.org.uk.